Hello, this is Peter Davison. You're listening to Gallifrey Public Radio. Gallifrey Public Radio, a weekly podcast dedicated to positive enjoyment of Doctor Who. We travel through classic and new episodes, explore the extended universe, and play a few games from time to time. We do discuss news, content that has been officially released, and the occasional interesting rumor, but we'll warn you before anything considered spoilers comes up. Welcome to episode 462 of Gallifrey Public Radio, where it's like Olympic yachting, only with a fleet of old ships, crewed by abductees, captained by immortal sociopaths. Good clean sport, right? I'm Julie. I'm Kier. I'm Haley. And I'm Jay. And this week, we tick the third box in the Black Guardian trilogy, as the Doctor, Tegan, and Turlo find themselves aboard an Edwardian sailing ship in space, in Enlightenment. As we open, Turlo continues to try and drum the voice of the Black Guardian out of his head, while the long-lost White Guardian attempts to send a warning message to the Doctor. That message nearly wipes out the TARDIS's power, but after sussing out the coordinates of the warning, the traveling trio find themselves in the cargo hold of a racing vessel from the turn of the 20th century. The crew of the ship don't seem to mind their presence, and the officers are acting even weirder, if you can believe it. We soon learn that this is a race of simulated Earth ships from across recorded history running a course through space, captained by Eternals who have no morality or emotion and seem to thrive only by manipulating ephemerals or mortal beings. They're in a race to win enlightenment, which they understand to be the gift of one's greatest desire. After sabotages, companions jumping overboard, and a finish line that seems the that sees both the the white and black guardian in front of the TARDIS team. It's Turlo who gets the last move and finally rids himself of the curse he's been under. Size. It could buy a galaxy. I can have that. Yes. I would point out that under our agreement, it is mine. Unless, of course, you wish to surrender something else in its place. The Doctor is in your debt for his life. Give me the Doctor, and you can have this, the TARDIS, whatever you wish. This is a story that includes a time-bending adventure, immortal beings without a moral compass, and a double agent trying to get out from under his mission. Which one of these holds your interest the most, or is it something else? Hmm. I, I think the the initial mystery of like the the sailing ship and the the crew that didn't know what they were doing and things like that that kind of wrote me in for the first part. Um, you know, I was I was curious. I was like, all right, I know there's a twist coming. Let's see what it is. You know. Uh, and then finding out what's going on and just like, how is this all going to play out kind of got me through right up until Captain Rack got on screen. And then that was, I didn't care about anything. As long as you had Rack on the screen, I was set. 
I kept remarking to Julie that she is like the, um, like the equivalent of a of a Tim Curry. Mm-hmm. You, know, you it's, it's were that, calling her Mrs. Curry, is what you were her, doing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was, it was yeah. Tina Curry there. Yeah. Um, just that, that grin and the, the the extremely large grin, like she was about to bite your face off, kind of thing, and just uh, just chewing scenery as well it was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I do definitely like the the idea of the things pulled from time and and that aspect of. of <coughs> Um, I, I guess it's a little bit of each of those pots that you mentioned, Julie. It's a it's, you've got the the uh, asynchronous or anachronistic aspect of all of these ships pulled across from various points in in nautical greatness, which is unusual because I think the most modern one that you see is actually from the Edwardian area, and I'm surprised they don't have like modern Olympic yachting teams and things like that, um, you know, catamarans or something out there. But the but you combine that with the fact that they are being assembled by these superior beings, allegedly, um, and all being done somehow under the thumb, in a way, of the Black Guardians, or to tie it all to the, to the greater continuity story. This really kind of hits everything that I wanted at this point uh, in the season. I, I mean, I was going to agree with part of what Jay said, and it's Captain Rack. That's what held my attention the most in this story. <laughs> I really liked the time bending aspect of it. I think it was really fun to see the old timey sailors, but then as soon as the pirates were there, I was like, "Oh, it's pirates!" That's I'm a, I'm in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you got to that ship. All right. Well, now it's interesting. It's interesting, <laughs> right? I even got to crack a buccaneer pun. So yes, that was that was did. pretty good. Yeah. Um, was it the one about how much pirates pay to pierce their ears? It was similar. <laughs> it was similar. Um, I can't even remember what it was because I was just I was I was so on at the time I couldn't. Even <laughs> it, it was about the ears. It was about ears. It was something about the 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 cost of entry or something like that. But, but you got to finish the joke now. I don't even remember it. It was yeah, so he's good. Not I, I blew it right now out it's, of it's a clever again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's it. We'll just go with that. Now, um, <laughs> kind of referencing the Eternals for a second. Uh, I'm not entirely sure if if the Eternals can be considered traditional villains in in that sense because. They seem to be so oblivious to the value and the needs of these supposed ephemerals. Um, it's kind of like the 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 indifference of the the bug beneath your feet and that kind of thing. Do you do you really pay attention to it? Do are you really cognizant of it all the time, or are they just that that inferior? Um, now we've seen these beings pop up a couple of times. Most recently, uh, they weren't referenced by name, but everybody kind of got it that we saw them uh, back in series 12 in the in the episode, Can You Hear Me? So that was where you had those two beings that um, uh, they've been manipulating people. You find out at some point late in the story, one of them shares the, the history of them um, with the doctor and with us as the viewers and says, at one time, you know, he and I uh, had a game going where we would see which one of these two planets could destroy themselves the fastest uh, with us sort of manipulating their minds. And they were just doing it for, for play. Um, so it's, I, I know that we've seen this sort of thing played out in, in a lot of other sci-fi storylines like Star Trek a lot, a lot, um, not necessarily Q, but maybe kind of beings like that, these eternal beings. So would you consider immensely powerful entities like this to be inherently evil or is it, do they kind of fall into some other category because they're just on some astronomically higher plane of existence? Power corrupts, absolute power. You know, it's, it's that kind of old adage. But I think when you when you have a, a creature that is so far removed from 
what it means to be human. It, it doesn't matter what they do or what their reasoning. It's always going to appear evil to us right. because it's just, it's something that we can't comprehend somebody being willing to do something like that when to them it's, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just the, the equivalent of going down for a stick of gum at the store or something. Mm. Yeah. They just don't, they can't comprehend They're They have the ability to read the minds of people of humans and they miss all of the emotional connectivity. They don't understand. They they only see the pieces that are relevant to them, which is where things are, what the plans might have been. But the what you think of when you think of being human, emotions and feelings and that kind of stuff just is so below their radar because they they don't have that. They don't need it. Right. So I, I would, I, so in that, I guess what I'm saying is I don't think that they are inherently evil, but I think that from the perspective of us mm. and the creatures that they are treating this way, they would always seem to be. Yeah. In my mind, to get the moniker of evil, I feel like there has to be some intent behind it. And there's not really malevolent intent behind it. They're just indifferent to the harm they may cause. So I think there probably is some other category that would better describe them than evil, but I don't necessarily know what that might be. Right. Yeah. The only thing is that it continues to be pointed out to them what they're doing and they choose not to care and say that. But it's been pointed out to them, hey, this is not good. And the closest the one got was saying that he thinks he cares and wants to be around Tegan. Mm -hmm. And that, but the other ones are told, Hey, this is ruining things. And it's like, well, they just, they just go back. They, it doesn't matter to them. Right. Right. That, that whole exchange is very creepy because when, you know, the, the first ship that gets destroyed, um, all the ephemerals are very upset because they're like, well, th- this is th- the whole crew has just perished. Well, no, 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 they got sent back. It's, they just sort of blip back to their, their original plane of existence. Which ones? The officers or the crew? Oh, well, well the officers, of course. Yeah. The crew. <laughs> it, it just doesn't even register. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, in, in anything even closer to a to a mortal being, you would call that... Uh, a sociopath. I mean, that's somebody who's absolutely inherently incapable of understanding or, or even fathoming the needs of others. But this is just, I, it, it's just this whole other level. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I, I'm not surprised that it gets utilized in, in sci-fi properties all over the place because it's just, it's so difficult to wrap your head around. Yeah. I think what still makes it interesting is that they are making choices about it because something like time continues on and really doesn't change or, or make a difference, mm. but it can cause harm. But something like that, where they're still making choices to pick people out for the purpose of games to them. I think it still does lean more towards the corrupt bad. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So we see the return of the White Guardian in this story, and mm-hmm. he doesn't really help much, but we do see the demise of the Black Guardian at last. Did anyone else expect the doctor to be more directly involved with taking down the one who's been trying to get him killed for so long? He did kind of stand quite a bit as the bystander at the table there as all this was shaking out. Didn't even really question Turlo. Um, Did the doctor then know that something was going on with Turlo the whole time? I never interpreted that he did. 
But I think there was something in that final exchange where the doctor made a conscious decision to say, you know what, this has been his struggle, and he needs to see his own path out of this. Um, I, I did think that there was that moment when uh, when Turlo was in the, the grid room, and the doctor came through, and just the look that he was giving Turlo, I was like, like he knows something. Like he, like mm-hmm. it, it definitely looked like he was like, okay, go ahead and hang yourself now, kind of thing. And I was surprised that it just played out as like, no, I was just here to rescue you. Like that's not the look you give someone that you're concerned about. <laughs> like, <laughs> so this was a, I think this was a really, really strong story for Mark Strickson. Um, I think we got quite a bit out of Tegan, or I mean, out of, out of Turlo in this one, um, as far as, yes, we did have a lot of those scenes where he's, you know, screaming at his hands again, and he keeps turning to the crystal like he's going to get some sort of an answer after he's been told time and time again that he's been cast aside and he's as good as dead and he's failed him. And But when he... Well, I, hmm? Go ahead. I, I think part of that might be the fact that at this point there was... There was concern between Davison and Janet Fielding and Mark Strickson about why, like, they they didn't understand the dynamic of their characters. Like, they were all concerned, like, why would the doctor continue to travel with people that are constantly so at odds and whatnot? And reportedly, John Nathan Turner actually, like, listened to their concerns and said, okay, well, let's start working on that. Like, how can we? And so this was their first chance to start building more camaraderie instead of antagonistic uh, relationships. Which actually feeds in nicely with the plot flow because of the fact that, you know, at all these times when Tegan has been very suspicious of Turlo and the friction is constant, 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 even when they have to work together and they have to keep one another alive, she still mm-hmm. doesn't trust him. She's constantly calling into question. And then at this point, now we can get something where, you know, as they get to this tumultuous finish um, and, and he gets his uh, redemption ish uh i i guess that word doesn't even really apply his his exit from the from the uh, the obligation right he made a bad deal and he had to suffer through it (laughs) yeah yeah but at least now this has been done in full witness uh by the doctor and tegan and now they can kind of start fresh he has sort of proven um not only is he, yes, he is self-serving, and he'll he'll admit that. Uh, in fact, he has admitted that. But he has had numerous opportunities. <laughs> the Black Guardian called him on it. You've had so many opportunities to, to, to destroy the Doctor, and you failed. And yes, he has, because he's incapable of doing it, because there is that little grain of decency within Turlo. Right. I feel like Turlo is both self-serving, but also very scared and afraid. So his default setting is, number one, what's best for me, but then number two, is what's best for me going to get me in trouble and or have someone be mad at me or chase me? (laughs) Not best for me. Go back to number one. (laughs) Yes, prime directive. Yes. It's true. And it was kind of interesting to see at the end, like we we knew that Turlo wasn't just a, you know, a kid from earth kind of thing. But at the end of this, we actually get the, the full, like, it's like, no, I want to go back to my home planet. Like, okay, there's, so he's full on alien. Then there's not. Okay. Yeah. So I had figured that. I just didn't know when that would come up. Yeah. You can't have that hair color naturally. (laughs) 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 
Well, no. Yep. They had to dye his hair because his hair color was exactly the same as Peter yep. Davison's, and they didn't want it to look the same on screen. So oh, they, is that true? Yeah, they made oh. him redhead, yeah. which is why in some episodes, yeah. it's really, really orange. Yeah. Makes sense now. One interesting thing about this uh, this story is that, and unfortunately, it's, it's something that needs to change, but to date, this is the only Doctor Who story that has both been written and directed by a woman. Yeah. Yeah. Fiona Cumming being the the director and Barbara Clegg being the writer, like it's, I mean, awesome. And it it's one of the it, one of the better uh, or like cohesive stories that we've seen you know, in, the, in the past couple of years of the show. So it's like, why aren't we doing this more often? <laughs> I would say, I mean, this is a this is a real gem of a story. I think some of the only things that I ever find that are kind of you know, I, I wish they had the opportunity to do have no fault with the script or with the direction. It's just a matter of the sets were rather limited. You know, we mm. kept using the same uh, staircase within the yacht. I mean, the, you, you had that that sort of aspect of it. But even, I mean, you had kind of interesting things going on with the costumes. You had this whole bit of uh, of all the, you know, the CSO in throwing Turlow out into space. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, they got him back. But, you know, it, craft services had a display. Sure. They got to set up on the other side of the right. camera for once. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nice. You got replacement yeah. celery at some point. So there's attention I, to little details. The, and I do think they did a lot of good work in the background for the crewmates and what was going on. It yeah. felt relevant and you felt like you were there and in the story. Not like sometimes where it's either distracting or pulls you out of it because not enough is going on and you feel that there should be something but you're like you're watching a voyeur like Mm. there's something else is supposed to be going on in there but i felt like this all connected together really well i don't know i'm just it it took 20 years to to get to this point and it's been 40 years since so let's come on let's catch up Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh, as julie kind of mentioned at the start of this there's a, a lot of facets to the story that uh, that can appeal to viewers based on what they look for in a, in a Doctor Who story, classic or otherwise. So how does this one uh, line up with our, our rewatch and recommendations ratings? I would call it, th- uh, just within this trilogy, I would call it the one that I would hand to somebody if somebody says, oh, and there's this whole Black Guardian thing, and that's how Turlo comes about. I would just hand them this one. Um, I, I mean, well, uh, Grant, you've already got your double brig, so you, you got to get started on that. One, so that's, 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 just, that's a given. <laughs> But no, uh, highly rewatchable because just as Julie just said, that even down to the supporting cast is really strong. Like Rack's first mate, uh, and you've got all the guys down in the in the galley uh, for uh, for the uh, the Edwardian yacht. They're all entertaining enough in all of their little unique personas and whatnot. Um, it, everything about it just has little details you can pick up each time. Like you know what exactly is in the rum and and all you could you could. You could rewatch it a number of times and still pull little interesting bits out of it or just follow a character and, and have fun with it that way. So rewatchability is definitely there and recommendability. Uh, I would definitely include it in a, uh, in a Davison set, in a fifth doctor set mm-hmm. and, um, and maybe even beyond just because it's one of those ones where you get to see uh, some progress uh, with problematic companions and things like that. It's got, it's got a lot of good stuff going to it. I think it lifts up the grouping of pirates and or ship stories that are included in a Doctor Who set. <laughs> so it elevates that. And so I would include it in the, that kind of recommendation set. 
and I would rewatch it. I think that it was fun and gave you some good information. And you can always learn more. <laughs> yeah, I, I would also recommend it. I, it's literally a swashbuckling adventure. So no reason not to recommend it. Um, and then, yeah, same reason I could rewatch it. Yeah, it's it's definitely rewatchable. I think like watching it this time was it was good to get the close of the, the Black Guardian story and Turlo's kind of whole thing. But anytime I watch it moving forward, it's that's going to be one of the least interesting things about the story to me. And that's, that's saying something. So, uh, yeah, I'm absolutely going to rewatch this. Um, and yeah, I I would, there's, there's so much in this for almost anyone that it, you'd be kind of remiss not to recommend it. So yeah, absolutely. Pass on both. There you go. Top mocks. Well, next week, we're going to be coming back with the, the Sarah Jane adventures. Whatever happened to Sarah Jane? Right. So we get to finish out the last story of the first season, and we get a really weird plot. Uh, if you didn't watch the scenes from next week when we watched the the uh, Warriors last time around, I won't spoil anything, even with a summary, because even the synopsis gives away too much, I feel. <laughs> even the title. <laughs> what happened to Sarah Jane? Yeah. That's pretty much all you need to know. Go from there. <laughs> this has been episode 462 of Gallifrey Public Radio. Until next week, this is Jay saying, so how often does he actually have to like refresh the celery? Is it like special space celery or is this happening more <laughs> often than we're seeing? <laughs> it sublimates out in deep space. And this is Kier saying, you have failed me. You will now see my wrath. You will live within this podcast in perpetual torment. <laughs> this is Julie saying, Hoist the mantails, level the transom, ready the tacking, don the oilskins, heave the monkey fists. Oh, and tell Tegan she looks fierce in a wig and a tiara. <laughs> uh, and this is Haley saying, we found out at Gallifrey 1 that British shows don't have craft services, so they were probably happy to have the spread on screen. <laughs> we'll see you next week. I'm Z. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Gallifrey Public Radio. Want to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, or just send us a good old-fashioned email to feedback at gallifreypublicradio.com. You can also give us a phone call at 754-225-5477. That's 754-CALL-GPR, and you may hear your voice on a future episode of the show. Everything's got to end sometime, otherwise nothing would ever get started. Join us next week for a brand new episode. Copyright 2022. See you next week.